Well, we're going to move into our study in Luke, turning back to the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 10. But as you uh, sort of flip the pages in your Bible and get ready to jump back into our study in Luke, I want to share with you one more announcement about something that's coming up uh, that we want to do together as a church. And this is our first Sunday of the new year, and uh, this is a significant year for us specifically at this campus as a church. Um, many of you know we had mentioned back in August that, that our goal is to actually launch as a church, um, our own independent church, come fall of this year. And so we're entering the year that as a church, we're seeking the Lord for His guidance, His provision, um, as we look to launch August of this year. But one of the things we wanted to do to begin this year is to, as a group, come together and seek the Lord with prayer and fasting. And um, for those of you that aren't familiar with fasting and the practice that it is in Scripture and, and one that the Lord invites us to partake in, fasting is temporarily abstaining from something that is good, um, typically and specifically food, in order to intensify an expression of need for something greater, or rather someone greater in God and His work in our lives. Now, Scripture doesn't command that you must fast. Um, God does not require it or demand it of Christians at any point. At the same time, the Bible does present fasting as something that is good, something that is beneficial, and in Jesus' own words, something that is expected of people that are going to follow him, which is why he would make statements like, and as you fast, do it in this manner, because he was expecting that his disciples, that his followers were people that would be fasting. Now, there are different reasons in Scripture why we see people fasting, both individuals and corporately as a group, as a tribe, as a nation, that they would fast. There were times of fasting for repentance and mourning over sin, and, and in that repentance to the Lord, they would fast and repent of their sin and their turning away from Him and the mistakes they had made and seeking forgiveness. There were times of preparation and seeking the Lord for greater power that they would fast and pray before Him. There were times for specific requests or guidance in a situation, maybe a decision they were making that they would fast before the Lord. But it was this starving of the flesh and allowing those hunger pains that come to once again draw their eyes towards the Lord and say, though I hunger physically for this, I hunger spiritually all the more for an answer from the Lord, for the Lord's presence to be here, to receive His forgiveness. And, and when fasting is done, it is not intended to punish our flesh. That's not the emphasis, but to redirect our attention to God. It is choosing to neglect that hunger for a season that our flesh has because we have a greater hunger for something in the Lord. Now, fasting's not a diet plan either. For those of you that are thinking, this is perfect because I wanted to lose a couple pounds this year, and if we're doing a fast, I can just hit those two at once. The purpose of a biblical fast is not to lose weight, but rather to have a deeper focus and fellowship with God. Fasting is also not a way that we as Christians somehow get to twist the arm of God and somehow force what we are wanting on Him. 
God's not sitting up there saying, well, I wasn't going to give it to you, but you fasted, so I guess I got to. It's not about changing his mind or forcing our will. It's much more about changing our mind and will and conforming to his. And I also recognize that for some, due to health concerns, maybe fasting from food isn't a reality that you can do right now. But what we want to invite the entire church to be a part of is to join us in a week-long fast beginning January 29th. That's going to be a Monday, and we'll be reminding you of this as we get closer. But what we want to do is starting that Monday, January 29th, is enter into a fast as a church. And there'll be different reasons throughout that week we'll be fasting, different, different intentional prayers we will be having, and we're going to put together some some guidance in that through some teachings that we'll send out. But the goal is for us as a church whole to be doing this. And so I want to make clear that it might look different for some of us, but my challenge to you is to be a part of it in some way. And if if it can't be food, then find something else that you're going to fast from for that week. If it can't be the full week, then maybe pick a meal during that day. Um, And for that entire week, maybe it's that meal that you fast from. Maybe it's a specific food that you fast from. But don't do this, okay? I know there, I've been guilty of this at times. Uh, People want to want to choose to fast from something that maybe isn't that going to be that big of a deal. Uh, I could tell you, you know what? I'm fasting from soda for that week. No Coke in my house. I'm not going to have any soda at all. Now that might sound impressive to some of you, but if you know me very well, then you know we don't have any soda in our house. I don't drink soda. So that, that fast is, is not much of starving anything and not really what the purpose of fasting is meant to be. And so my challenge to you is fast in a way that you feel it. Ask the Lord to show you. You've got a couple weeks of an on-ramp to prayerfully prepare for this. Ask the Lord to show you what it is you need to fast from for that week as we as a church intentionally turn our faces towards the Lord. And, and you'll know when he shows you what it is because it's going to hurt and you're going to go, ooh, not that. And that's probably exactly what it should be. But join with us as a church as we set apart this week to fast. And then what we're going to be doing together is we'll end that fast February 4th. That's that Sunday morning in February. And we'll be breaking that fast together by taking communion. And so for those of you that are abstaining in some way from food, you get to break that fast together as we have the Lord's Supper together and once again seek his face. But I want to invite you into this as we begin a new year, specifically this year that we look to launch, and join with us as we turn our eyes towards the Lord together. Pray about it, but allow the Lord to show you what it is you should be fasting from that week. And then let's seek his face together. So with that, let's turn back into the gospel of Luke. We've finished our series we were doing for the Advent season, and we're jumping back into the gospel of Luke that we're slowly making our way through, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today that brings us to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. I'll read the text out loud for us. Please follow along, and then we'll open with a word of prayer as we begin. Luke 10, 38, we read, 
Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken from her. Let's pray this morning as we begin. And God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for its power, its truth, the life that comes as we read it and chew on it and meditate on your words and then, empowered by your spirit, seek to live them out. And God, the words we're looking at this morning, we pray that they would be more than words. God, we pray that the heart of each person here would be ready to receive the truth that exists in this text, the application that is there for us today, the instruction and correction. And Lord, whatever it is we might be needing this morning, I pray your spirit would speak to each individual clearly, directly, powerfully, that we might leave this place better than we came in this morning, Lord, for your glory and not our own. Thank you for a new year and yet the same God who never changes and a word that endures forever. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. Would you be glorified in this time as we study your word? And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down a title, you could put this down this morning. The blessing in the balance. The blessing in the balance. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And there's a balance we see all throughout Scripture that takes place in many different forms. It's the balance between faith and works, sitting at Jesus' feet and also serving his kingdom, worshiping God but also working with God. We see it in Ephesians 2.8 when we're told that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's right. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And yet we could go over to James chapter 2, and we're also told, but your faith without works is dead. In Isaiah 64, we talk about all the works that we could possibly do, all our righteous deeds, and what do they come out to be? Just filthy rags when it comes to our need for salvation and something greater. But not at the expense of what Paul would say in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. In John 15, 
we see a beautiful balance of these two things, of, of being with God and working for God when we're told that he is the vine and we are the branches. And the branches that don't bear any fruit, they're removed, they're cut off. But when we abide in him, we will bear much fruit because apart from him, we can do nothing. And we see this balance in our text in Luke chapter 10. We left off before the Advent season looking at a lawyer who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And then concluded, well, I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I need to love my neighbor as myself. But then hoping to justify himself, he says, but who's really my neighbor, right? And the emphasis within that parable Jesus gave of the good Samaritan was that he needed to go and do likewise, to go and love like this Samaritan did even the stranger on the road in need of help, even those who you might despise and want nothing to do with. And if we were to just look at that isolated text, we could all walk away and say, see, this is the most important thing. I need to go and be like the Good Samaritan. I need to go and do, do, do. And yet here we see the balance. Immediately after this, we're brought to a text where we're going to see the opposite side of this where one who desired to serve the Lord was doing and doing and going and going and yet was distracted from a good thing, the better part that Mary had chosen in sitting at Jesus' feet. And what we have to realize this morning is that Martha gets a bad rap in a lot of sermons. But today we want to put an end to that. Before we continue on, we need to make clear Martha's not the villain in our story and Mary the hero. Martha's not the one that we should look at and say, have nothing to do with her and what she's doing, but have everything to do with Mary. Both are needed. Both are important. In fact, even when Jesus addresses the issue, it's not him condemning her service, but it's him elevating what Mary has chosen to do. There's a balance within it, we will see. But as we begin in verse 38, what we see is that as they entered a certain village, they enter the house of Martha, who welcomes them in. Now, we know this village to be Bethany because in John chapter 11, we read that this is the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And we're introduced to Martha who were told welcomed Jesus into her house. Now, as best we can guess, Martha was the older sister here because we see her mentioned first, but also it's her house we're told that she is welcoming Jesus and the disciples into. But what do we know about Martha specifically? Well, we know that Martha was loved by Jesus because John chapter 11 tells us that in another interaction she has with him that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We know Martha was a woman of great faith, as we see in the death of Lazarus, because she believes that Jesus is the one who can bring him back to life. And we see Martha was a hospitable host here as she welcomes them into her home, something that's spoken of in Scripture as, as a spiritual service and a spiritual gift even, the gift of hospitality. 
And she's not only accepting of Jesus' mission, but we see in her acceptance of them in her home and her desire to serve them that she's also wanting to be a part of the work that Jesus is doing in his mission. And what we can't overlook in this moment is what it would have cost her to open up her home to Jesus. This is a significant act, what she is doing in this moment, because Jesus isn't alone. He's got a whole crowd of hungry disciples with him that have been traveling on the road. And also, Jesus isn't loved by everyone. To welcome him in and care for him, it demonstrated your support of what he was doing and could potentially put you at risk with those who were coming against him. We see this at times even with the disciples in Acts when they're going throughout areas and staying with people. Often it would put the people of that home at risk because now you're a part of that group. So this was a sacrifice for Martha. To welcome Jesus into her home came at both a cost and a risk. But isn't that exactly the same truth today for you and I if we welcome Jesus into our lives? If you choose to welcome Jesus into your life and to serve him and his mission, it's going to come at a cost and it's going to come at a risk. It will cost you financially at times. It's going to cost you relationally at times. It's going to cost you time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears if you're going to be a part of his kingdom. Don't ever let anyone tell you it doesn't cost you anything to follow Jesus. Now let me be clear, the price for salvation is paid in full by Jesus. But the price of discipleship is us counting the cost and giving up all to follow him. And it's also going to come with a risk. A risk that your reputation in this world might be ruined. A risk that your future dreams might be shattered. A risk that your well-being and your comfort might have to take a back seat to obedience to what God is calling you to do today. But as I've said before, more is gained than what is lost when for Christ we count the cost. What you give up is not worth comparing to what you gain when you commit to following Jesus. And what we gain is this incredible promise in John chapter 1 that every one of us can hold on to. That as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Martha in our text is among those who have been given the right to be called children of God, not just Mary who sits at his feet. Martha welcomes him into her home, into her life, and desires to be a part of his mission. Why is this important? Because what I don't want to allow any of us to do this morning is to immediately say within our hearts, in the text, we're all Mary, and let's make sure we're never Martha. What I hope we can all do is realize both these women are desiring to serve and love Jesus and be a part of his mission. And so I hope what we can all do is say, man, there are times when I'm Mary and there are times when I'm Martha. 
And there are times when I need to be a Mary, and there are times when I need to be a Martha. There are times I need to sit at Jesus' feet, and there are times I need to be a part of serving him and the work that he's doing. But either one of these at moments can become a distraction or a problem if it takes us from what he is calling us to in a season. And it brings us to the other sister we see in our text. The sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, as you read your Bible, if you're familiar with Mary, you'll know that this is her M.O. in Scripture. Whenever you find Mary, the sister of Martha, you're always going to find her at Jesus' feet. In fact, we could look at the three different texts we see her in, this being one of them where we're told she's sitting at his feet and she's hearing his word. But we could also go to John chapter 11 when her brother has died. And what do we find her doing? Falling at Jesus' feet and saying, Lord, if you were there, he would have been alive. You could have healed him. And then we find her in John chapter 12, and she comes again to Jesus' feet, and she anoints his feet with this costly, fragrant oil. And we learn some things about Mary and her posture, and that she's always going to his feet in his presence. And it demonstrates her humility. See, Mary kneels before Jesus in submission. She looks up to him, both figuratively and literally. She's not coming and standing before him to make her demands, as we will see Martha do in a moment. She comes and she kneels before him, acknowledging his authority, his control. And we also see within these three different texts where she's coming before his feet, her devotion to him. Mary was was not afraid of appearances when it came to showing her affection and devotion to Jesus. Whether it was here sitting at his feet and learning from a rabbi in a time and a culture where women were often not taught at all and not brought into these circles where a rabbi would teach his followers, Or later, when she would cover his feet with costly oil in such a bold and extravagant way of worshiping and loving him. She wasn't concerned with Martha's reaction in our text this morning or Judas's reaction when she gives up so much costly oil in such an extravagant way. She was devoted to Jesus. She was focused on one person and one person only. And that was the one she kneeled before in submission and devotion. Now, you and I this morning may not be able to physically kneel before the feet of Jesus, but we have much to learn about taking a posture of humility and devotion before him that isn't concerned about the appearance or response of others, but are solely focused on him and in a desire to submit to him, serve him, worship him, and learn from him we fix our eyes on him alone. And Martha in this moment has a bit of a problem with the decision her sister has made to sit at Jesus' feet. In contrast, what we're told in Scripture is that as she sat at his feet and heard his word, but Martha 
was distracted with much serving. And it moves her to take an action of approaching Jesus and making some demands. Now, this word distraction that we have in our English language, it actually comes from a French term that was related to a cruel form of torture. Now, there was a medieval torture. It was a barbaric tactic that was set aside for the very worst offenders in that time. And what they would do is when they took this offender, they would actually attach a rope to each one of their limbs individually, and then they would attach those ropes to a horse. And you can begin to see what this process would look like as they would bring these horses and prod them and get them to a full gallop where their limbs would be pulled apart four different directions. Now, we call this form of execution death by dismemberment. The French called it death by distraction. Distraction is literally that, though, isn't it? It's being full, pulled in four different directions. It's, it's the inability to keep everything together because it's all going out and we can't possibly keep it there. And this is what Martha's serving is doing in this moment in her house. It is pulling her apart. She is losing the ability to keep it together because there are so many different ways she's being pulled. Not because of wicked intent. Not because of some sinful desires. But because she has allowed her work for Jesus to take her focus off of worshiping Jesus where we're recognizing a need for a balance this morning, her priorities have gotten out of order. And instead of bringing life, this service is actually robbing her of it. I wonder how often you and I are guilty of this today. Have you been experiencing some of the death that comes from distraction? Feeling like in life you're being pulled in so many different directions and you can't keep it all together? You're in pursuit of loving Jesus well, but maybe you've misplaced your priorities. You're too busy serving Jesus to have time to sit with him. You're too busy talking about Jesus that you haven't taken the time to talk with him and to hear from him. You're too busy setting up spaces where Jesus can show up and people can experience him that you don't have space in your own life for Jesus to speak and lead and guide you. The very one we seek to honor, we are dishonoring by neglecting. Like the Pharisees, so busy with getting ready for the Messiah, they missed him when he came. We have believed the lie far too often that our culture tells us that being busy means you are important. And to sit at his feet is a leisure activity we just don't have time for because there's too much to do. And if we're not careful, we will spend our whole lives serving a stranger because we never sat with him and got to know who our Messiah was. Don't be deceived this morning, church. Serving a stranger is not devotion, it's an occupation. Like waiting on tables for people you know nothing about because it's your duty, 
Far too many of us are guilty of serving a God we know so, so little about because we've not taken the time to sit in his presence and get to know him. To sit at his feet and learn from his words. And for most of us that have fallen into this trap, I'm willing to bet we did so with the best of intentions. We didn't mean to get here, but we're here just the same. Because we prioritized the wrong things. The work over the relationship. We overcommitted to good things, and in doing so, we've missed out on the best things. Now, I stand here with you as a uh, fellow struggler with overcommitting. My name is Lucas, and I'm an overcommitter. And my wife constantly has to remind me of this reality that realize when you say yes to something, you're also saying no to something else. Man, I wish in this moment Martha could have heard those words. If Martha could have been told in this moment, if she had only known that saying yes to the dishes and the dinner was saying no to deepening her relationship with Jesus and her understanding of his words at this moment. Because the trap I believe she fell into is the same one we fall into, which is I can say yes to this and I don't have to say no to anything else. We'll just get this done and then, then we'll have time, then we'll have space, then we can fully invest in that other thing. Do you remember the struggle with this back in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus was calling people to follow him? What did they say? Okay, but first. All right, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. That's a priority. I'm, I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to do whatever you say, Jesus. Wherever you go, I will go. But first, I've got this other kind of timely matter. I've got this other priority. Let me go do that. Let me bury the dead. Let me say goodbye to a friend. Let me finish up this one thing and then I'm there. Don't be mistaken. Now you may finish that thing. It may have a deadline and you've got a plan. It's two weeks away and once that's done, then everything's going to change. There will always be another thing. Another problem to fix, another goal to achieve, another season to get through, another show to watch, another relationship to pursue, and eventually you will find that all of those yeses for your time also were at the same time saying no to him. Every yes is also a no. We acknowledge this at weddings, don't we? When you stand before everybody and you're choosing to say that this is the person I'm committing to for the rest of my life. And in turn, you are forsaking all others to live only with this person as long as you both shall live. It's saying yes to them and no to every other person that's ever lived and ever will. I wonder how many of us would more rightly prioritize our time if we realized well, this yes also means no to everything else. And is that deserving of my yes? Is it more deserving than these other things? 
Martha's being a good host in a culture where that was an important task and something she was called to do. She's not doing anything wrong. But in this moment, it distracts her and it actually leads her to a, a place of being worried and troubled about many things and thinking that her sister's in the wrong for having made sitting at Jesus' feet in this moment a priority. Now, her sister had chosen to say yes to sitting with Jesus, which meant, by default, saying no to being a part of the dishes, the dinner, the cleaning up, and working around the house. And Martha, she's going to do something about it. She's got some words for Jesus. We're told that Martha approaches him and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone Therefore, tell her to help me. Realize this, that misplaced priorities lead to misplaced conclusions about God, about others, and about ourselves. And we see all three taking place in this one statement Martha makes to Jesus. Here she is trying to serve Jesus and the disciples, and she's being overworked and underhelped and underappreciated She storms to Jesus to file her complaint, not coming to sit and listen like Mary, but coming to stand and make some demands. She calls him Lord, and then in that same breath, tells him what he needs to do. And look at these three wrong conclusions she has drawn because of her misplaced priorities. She first believes the Lord doesn't care. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's wrongfully concluded Jesus didn't care in this moment because she's wrongfully prioritized her plan over his and her priorities over Mary's. She thinks he doesn't care because he's not defending her cause. She's been waiting this whole time. When are you going to say, okay, Mary, get up and go help your sister? And it didn't come. And so she's going, Jesus, hello. Do you not notice the girl at your feet? Do you not see me sweating over here in the corner? When in reality, her cause has gotten in the way of his cause. And she is doing to her sister the very thing she's accusing her sister of doing to her. Leaving her while she does the most important thing. She believes it's serving over here. And so she says, my sister's not doing the most important thing. Tell her to get over here with me. When in reality, Jesus is going to say, actually, she's choosing the better thing. And that's something that's not going to be taken from her. Maybe you should follow suit. (laughs) The second wrong conclusion we see Martha drawing here is that her sister has abandoned her. My sister has left me to serve alone. Her sister isn't abandoning her. She's just not prioritizing serving Jesus over sitting and learning from him. And what's interesting is that we were told in our text that Mary also sat with Jesus And it's assumed that at some point during this time, Martha was probably among the disciples sitting with Jesus. 
that the entirety of the time she wasn't in the kitchen or around the rooms trying to clean and tidy up. There would have been a time she would have welcomed him in and they would have greeted together before she decided it's time to go and do some work. So the only one that's left their post here, so to speak, is Martha. But when we're misplacing our priorities and caught up in our own troubles, we can quickly point the blame instead of owning our own mistakes. She now has wrongfully accused both Jesus and Mary of abandoning her when both could not be any further from the truth. And the final wrong conclusion she's making here is that she's the only one doing any kind of service in the room. My sisters abandoned me. You don't even care. And here I am doing all the serving. Is Martha alone in her service in this moment? Absolutely not. Jesus is serving everybody in this home as he teaches them from his word. And Mary is serving Jesus and his cause by presenting herself to him to learn under him and be used by him. It's what Romans 12.1 tells us, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. She's presenting herself before him as a disciple that desires to learn and be instructed so that she can better follow him and live for him. She is serving Jesus in this moment. Don't believe that it's wasted time when you sit in the presence of Jesus. Everybody is serving in this moment. The difference in the services going on in this house is that Martha is the only one we're told is distracted, troubled, and worried. Martha is the only one that's trying to tell Jesus what he needs to do and is being critical of what other people in the room are doing. Martha's the one found complaining. Does that mean that service is bad and we should all abandon it as a sinful, wicked practice? Absolutely not. When she brings this frustration to Jesus and she tells him what he needs to tell her sister to go and do, he doesn't say, no, you need to stop serving. What a waste of your time. He doesn't do that. He doesn't condemn her serving at all. But what he does do is elevate what Mary has chosen to do in this moment and doesn't allow her sister to pull her away from it. We need people in the church. In fact, I would argue, especially this church, as we look to launch this year, we need more people that are willing to serve within the church and outside the walls of the church, that are willing to say, God, here am I, send me, all go. Lord, how have you gifted me and given me talents and abilities and space and time and energy and insight? Let me use it for your glory. Show me where to plug in. Because the issue was not her service. It was her distraction, and it was what it was causing and producing in her life. He says to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. In Martha's complaint here, we find the same Greek word, melee, that the disciples used in their accusation of Jesus 
when they were out on the sea in a storm with him. In Mark 4.38, the disciples asked Jesus, Do you not care that we are perishing? Once again, a wrong accusation because they don't understand what's going on around them, what the priority is, what Jesus has already said. No, we're going to go to the other side. But Jesus responded to both of these situations the same way. He calmed the troubled hearts and the storms that swept around them. Martha's problem was her worry and trouble about many things. But whether or not Jesus cared, about why her sister had abandoned her, about how stressful it was being left alone to do all this work. And the one thing she really needed to calm those worries, to solve those troubles, was the one thing Mary was doing. Sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word, abiding in the vine so that she could bear much fruit. Being a sheep that knows the shepherd's voice and goes to him when he calls to you. Let me ask you this morning, are you finding yourself in a similar space to Martha? Are you worried and troubled about many things? Are you finding yourself distracted from what you know you should be doing, but you're failing to find time to get your priorities straight? We should lose, no, we should learn from Jesus' words here. And choose the good part, the thing that is needed that won't be taken away, time with Jesus. See, as he has entered this home, he's but six months away from his crucifixion. He's on his journey towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. And they have limited time that they're going to get to spend with their Messiah on earth. Was it better spent distracted and missing his conversations and interactions and not sitting at his feet so you could do a bunch of things for him? No. They had limited time with him. Better to invest this moment he's in your house, sitting at his feet, and then as he goes, continue on in your service for him than to miss this moment they could have with him. And you and I, we have limited time on this earth. We don't know how many days we have left. Are we wasting that time? Saying that we're going to spend time sitting at Jesus' feet. We're going to spend time abiding with him. We're going to spend time allowing him to speak into our lives and to transform our hearts and to renew our minds and to fill us again until everything else is done. Now, Mary chose the good part that wouldn't be taken from her to sit at Jesus' feet. In John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Other translations say you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In Matthew 11 28 through 30, Jesus gives this invitation. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you feeling troubled, worried, wearied, heavy laden today? Receive the invitation to Jesus to come to him, to sit at his feet, to be in his presence, to experience the freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is, the easy and light yoke and burden, where there is life and life abundant. And the most practical place we can apply this is the first thing in the morning with what we do with our time. In the beginning of your day, have you made it your first priority to sit at the feet of Jesus? Some of the greatest saints that we look back to and we often quote and look to and hold in high esteem were men that made the first part of their morning a priority. Charles Spurgeon said, It is a good rule to never look into the face of a man in the morning till you have looked into the face of God. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That looks like a life well-balanced, where the priorities are right. Recognizing, man, there's so much to do today that I cannot afford to give up my time with Jesus. In fact, maybe I need to create more space and spend more time with Jesus Because apart from him, I can do nothing. How foolish is it of us? How prideful is it of us to think, I've got so much to do today, I don't have time to spend with Jesus. I've just got to go and get it done. Martin Luther understood, no, 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 I'm not going to get anything done effectively if I haven't first spent time with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 would tell you a lot of things you can do, but if you don't do them in love, it's a bunch of noise. You could fill your time with a lot of activities, but they're not going to have the same life, the same fruit, the same love, the same power that they would if you first spent time at Jesus' feet. And what if we were to rightly prioritize that? It's a new year an opportunity for you to have a clean slate and say, you know what, one thing I want to make a priority this year is not compromising my time with Jesus. Now I know that can be very difficult in the morning depending on the season of life you're in. I've got three kids at home and I don't get to tell them dad's priority until eight o'clock is to spend time with Jesus. So if you wake up, you make your own breakfast, you get yourself dressed and ready for school. This is my time with Jesus. I could very quickly fall into the trap of, of being the opposite here where I'm failing to do my responsibility as a father because I need this. This is my time with Jesus. I can't help you. Yeah, but sometimes it looks like getting up way earlier than you want to. Because sometimes the morning routine is not predictable. But choosing to say, I am carving out that time with Jesus. 
Now I get for some of you, you're not morning people and you're like, my time with Jesus is at night. Okay, well then have your time carved out with Jesus at night, but maybe have a refresher course in the morning. Because I still think it is so important that in the morning, first thing, your eyes are brought upon the Lord. So that everything you do that day, everything you experience, you're seen through a lens of setting your mind on things above and not on things below. And you're seeing things through his eyes, with his heart, and you're not allowing yourself to get caught up in the morning because the first thing you do is scroll on your phone, which is saying what? Life is about me. I want to be entertained. I'm going to focus on what I want to see, what I want to do. It's a terrible way to start your day. Hide the phone. Put it away. Look into the eyes of the Lord first thing in your morning. Because if we want to be people of balance today, we have to recognize our need to first and foremost abide with Jesus and then go be a part of his work. Before Jesus ever called the disciples to go in the Great Commission, he called them to himself to come and sit before him and to do life with him. And then he sent them out. His invitation to you is the same. Whether for the first time to come to Jesus or after you've given your life to Jesus each day, once again, to come to him, to deny yourself, to take up that cross, and then to follow in his footsteps. There was a scientist at the turn of the century, Henry Drummond, who said this, Gentlemen, I beseech you to seek the kingdom of God first. I promise you a miserable time if you seek it second. It seems evident that the Lord wants us each to imitate Mary in our worship and Martha in our work. Because blessed are the balanced that do both. Both of these are essential in the walk of any believer. That there is time abiding with Jesus and there is time serving him. But here in our text what we see this morning was Martha allowing the distraction of her service to keep her from sitting at his feet. And the encouragement for those this morning worried and troubled about many things. Those distracted with good things that have kept you from the best. Those with misplaced priorities, even if they came with the best intentions, is to come to the feet of Jesus today before we take communion. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we prepare to enter into some worship and communion together. But before we take this together, I want to invite you in this moment to respond in one of two ways. First, let's be clear, communion is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, you've got two choices this morning. Let's change that, the far better decision, and then join with us and take communion. Or if you're choosing to not make that decision today, then I would also ask you to make the decision to not take communion. This is something that Jesus has called his followers to do in remembrance of him and what he has done for us on the cross. So this morning, if you have not given your life to Jesus. What do I mean giving your life to Jesus? If you have not confessed your sin to Jesus, that you are a sinner, that we all are, 
and that you need a Savior for your sins. Because the wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have not made the decision to confess your sins to Jesus, to repent of them, which means to change your mind and change your ways, to start calling sin what Jesus calls sin, and to stop allowing yourself to live in it and condone it, but to choose to say this morning, all right, Jesus, I give. I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I've done things that weren't in accordance with what you called me to do. And I want to turn away from that today. That's the first step. But then when we confess with our mouth and we believe in our hearts that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is God in the flesh who came to dwell among us and he lived a perfect life and died on a cross for your sins because it was his death, his blood shed for us that was necessary to forgive our sins. If you believe that he did that, that he died on that cross for your sins, and three days later he rose from the grave and offers eternal life to anybody that would give their lives to Jesus, Scripture tells us you will be saved. And in a moment when you make that decision that the Holy Spirit's already been prompting you to make, he will renew your mind. He will forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, where sin abounded, grace abounds so much more. You'll become a new creation in Christ. Your name is written in heaven. And you went from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, a co-heir with Christ, more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. That's possible for you today, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, because of what Jesus did on the cross when he said it was finished. The work is complete. And so by grace, a gift you don't deserve, through faith, believing in what we just said of who Jesus is and what he did, you can be saved in a moment right now with a home sealed for you in heaven. If you need to make that decision, and let's be clear, this is a decision you can make today, I'm going to ask you to either raise your hand or stand up where you are so we can pray for you and so we can welcome you into the family of God. Is there anybody that needs to make that decision before we take communion today? what I want to do in this moment then. I want to speak to the believers that are in the room today. The believers who are finding themselves like Martha. And you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And you know those words he said to Martha are just hitting your heart. You can fill in the blanks with your name. But he's speaking them straight to your heart. that you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And this morning I would ask you to respond by standing where you're at so that we can pray for you. And I'll tell you first and foremost, I'm standing not because I need to on stage, but I'm standing with those who stand. Because even this week as I was studying and preparing this text, I was reading those words, Martha, Martha, but I was hearing Lucas, Lucas, You've been 
distracted, you've been troubled and worried about many things, but one thing is needed. And if he's calling you today to acknowledge that, to confess it, to call it out, and to make that correction this morning, stand up where you're at so we can pray for you. Here's what I want you to know from what we see Jesus' response to Martha. That there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That his response to Martha doesn't have 12 exclamation points after it. With three paragraphs of guilt tripping her for all the reasons she should have known better and should have done better. In fact, if I could guess what Jesus' Martha, Martha sounded like, I don't think they were a raised voice. I think they were a calm, mellow whisper of, Martha, Martha, you're troubled. You're worried about so many things. But Mary, she's chosen a better thing. The one thing needed right now that would put your troubles to an end, that would stop the worries that could once again redirect that distraction and refocus you on what is most important. Come and sit at my feet. Come and hear my words. Receive forgiveness this morning. And so I want to pray for all those standing before we take communion and let's get our hearts right before the Lord. Jesus, I thank you for those standing this morning. that are acknowledging where they've been troubled and worried about many things. And Lord, though they may have had the best of intentions and didn't want to end up where they're at, they're recognizing this morning where they've gotten off track. Priorities have been misplaced. They've been troubled and worried, and maybe it's even drawn them like Martha to wrong conclusions about who you are and whether or not you care about the people around them and how they've abandoned them and left them alone and that no one else is serving and understanding the space they're in. God, I pray in this moment that they would feel your presence, that you would correct wrong conclusions, that you would realign their priorities with yours. Not a pendulum swing that draws them to a place of saying, no more service, just sitting. But not being content with where they are today of being distracted by many things and not allowing you to be the first priority. God, where there is guilt, Lord, where there is shame, God, where they are feeling condemnation and isolation, God, I pray that this morning you would remove that. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And I pray in this morning, this morning they would feel your love, your grace, this invitation to a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light, where there is rest for their souls and life abundant in you.
And God, I pray for all of us that we would leave here with a a better plan empowered by your spirit to make you the priority first thing in the morning, to sit at your feet, to hear your words, to be taught your truth. That everything else would come second to that. That we would go and be poured out only as we've first been filled up. That we would abide in the vine so we can bear much fruit. Thank you for those, Lord, that acknowledged in this moment their need to respond to your word. And I pray that they would leave here, Lord, with a sense of that life, that freedom, that renewed sense of purpose and priority. And that it wouldn't be motivated by guilt, but love. And that it wouldn't be marked by frustration, but joy. And that it would be to your glory alone, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Now we're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. And in Matthew chapter 26, we read this. That as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so we take communion this morning as followers of Jesus in remembrance of him. We take the bread in remembrance of his body broken for us, that he gave freely for us. He was broken so that we might be made new and complete in Christ. And so let's take the bread together today. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us. That you came and dwelled among us, that you can sympathize with our weaknesses, and yet you, though tempted, were without sin. We thank you for your sacrifice demonstrating your love for us and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And now we take of the cup that represents his blood of the new covenant that was shed for many for the remission of sins. The Old Testament tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So Jesus' blood was shed for us to do more than the animal sacrifices could do in the Old Testament that brought a covering and a need for another sacrifice and another sacrifice. Jesus' precious blood washes us white as snow, once and for all paying the price for our sins. And so we take this today to remember the new covenant we enter into in our relationship with Jesus. Let's take the cup together.
Jesus, we thank you for your blood shed for us. As we sing what could wash away our sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could make us whole again, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount we know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you for this new covenant relationship we have entered into with you, where the work is finished in Jesus. We remember your sacrifice, and we pray that our lives would be offered as living sacrifices for you, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And as we enter into a time of worship this morning, in Matthew 26, we saw them take the Lord's Supper together. And as they finished in that moment, they would continue on their way and it would bring them to a garden. And where we take communion, we remember the greatest work ever done in history, where Jesus went to a cross and died for us. Let's not forget this moment in the garden that took place before it, where Jesus sat at his Father's feet and was still before him. That we see both of Mary and Martha in this moment where Jesus sits at his Father's feet and then he goes and does the greatest work ever done. Let's follow in his footsteps today. Let's worship a God who finished the work and calls us to follow, living for him. Let's learn from his example. And for you in this moment, it might look like standing and raising your hands in worship. There might still be things on your heart and things on your mind that he's calling you to get prayer for. There's going to be people available front of the room, upstairs in the back, that are willing and ready to pray with you. But let's engage with the Lord in this moment, as His Spirit is calling us to do. And let's celebrate that finished work we have experienced in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.